we are keeping our focus on Black History Month, and uh, we're staying in the state of Missouri, uh, a state that has been the birthplace of many celebrated figures who rose from the ashes of slavery to a place of prominence in our nation's history. Individuals such as Dred Scott, Blanche Kelso Bruce, James Milton Turner, and others were instrumental in opening doors to freedom for many who followed. Here to talk about some of these remarkable individuals and bring history alive is Angela Da Silva, president of the National Black Tourism Network. Angela, welcome to Traveling On. Thank you. Thank Tell you. us a little about the mission of the National Black Tourism Network. Um, actually, we specialize in tours of the African diaspora. Anywhere African slaves were taken around the world, and um, part of that, and, and part of where my audience comes from, if you will, is that I'm a, prof- uh, a professor at Lindenwood University here um, in St. Louis. So that's what we specialize in. But the other part of it domestically is that we uh, do educational tourism within the country, uh, bringing to aspect uh, to light lesser-known aspects of uh, African American history. And primarily, we specialize in slavery and underground railroad tours. Mm-hmm. Now, St. Louis itself has been a significant place in uh, the history of African Americans, whether it's been the culture or the legal history. And so much of that legal history that has shaped and uh, uh, defined uh, African American citizens uh, took place right there in St. Louis uh, with uh, with uh, Dred Scott and the Dred Scott uh, versus Sanford case. Uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, Dred Scott and uh, the role that St. Louis played and uh, 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 that uh, remarkable uh, uh, decision that was handed down that uh, really defined Africans as less than whole people. Well, it, you know, the, the climate or the culture of which Dred Scott was able to sue um, goes back to 1820 uh, during the uh, development of the Missouri Constitution and the Missouri Compromise. There was a climate here. The, the fact that St. Louis said here, was the uh, on the Mississippi River? It was a crossroads. I mean, everybody going west, going from east to west, actually went through here. And you had, as for a long time, this was the last city on the frontier. So you had a lot of different cultures, such as the Germans, such as the Scots Irish, um, coming into the area. And for those particularly two groups, uh, especially the Germans, um, brought with them some really interesting. Um, thoughts on freedom and on democracy based on what had gone on in Europe and the Scots-Irish as well. Um, and they were had read, especially the Irish, they had run into, once their arrival on the East Coast, they had run into to prejudice and they had run into um, a lot of the problems that, that black people were having. So as these people were moving west, they were trying to leave a little bit of that behind them. And let's say that their views on um, people owning people um, changed. And here in, uh, for example, there was, because of that, the influx, we were 50-50 as far as people were concerned. You know, we were considered a border state. And as far as people viewed slavery, it, it tilted really toward people who did not believe in it because of the influx of the culture, of the various cultures that were heading west and seeking a new life. Um, in our very Constitution, and which is, which, and I say all that to say, how Dred Scott was able, as a slave, to be able to sue in a Missouri court. And that is because two things. When we applied for 
um, statehood um, twice after the Enabling Act of 1819. The Missouri Constitution draft was kicked back by Congress twice because um, at that time the pro-Southern people that had come here by the old National Road through Kentucky were major slave owners, and they did not want free blacks to be able to reside in the state. Now, this is one of the first times that, we'll, that you will see in the country that the United States Congress um, actually call, said, kick the Constitution draft back because they said you could not restrict the movement of its citizens. So it's like one of the first times that we are considered or called by Congress actual citizens. So this is the premise of which the, our, our first two attempts were denied. However, when, in order to get statehood, not only did they take that out, but they provided for blacks uh, to be able to sue, especially slaves, to be able to sue in a court of law as indigent people, and that is that the state would pay for uh, legal representation. So therefore, um, Dred and Harriet Scott were slaves that were, that were able to get really high-profile uh, high counsel from the very beginning um, because the state of Missouri paid for it, and it was provided by the Constitution. So the legal premise, though, going back to the Missouri Compromise, of which... Uh, Dred Scott was able to sue is the Missouri Compromise of 1820. And, of course, the, one of the three main components of that is once free, always free. Hmm. You know, a, another uh, amazing uh, Missouri native that uh, that that I'm very um, fond of, really, is uh, William Wells Brown. Uh, he wrote a very, I think, a very powerful um, book, novel, about... Uh, um, uh, the relationship, I suppose, uh, for lack of a better word, between white men and and black women back in the, in, in the eighteen around eighteen fifty. Talk, tell us a little bit about him and, and share his his story because I, I think it's just it's a wonderful story. Well, William Wells Brown's um, father was also his master, and um, he had immigrated here um, to uh, to an area right outside. Uh, St. Louis, um, when Williams Wells Brown was just a baby. And at a very early age, he was apprenticed to, um, to a blacksmith who really misused him um, as, as an apprentice, and he ran away. But the interesting part about it, he was so attached to his mother, he ran back home. So his father did not send him back to that particular apprenticeship, um, but as, as, as he got a little older, about 14 or 15, he was re-apprenticed, this time to a slaver, interesting enough. And he traveled with this slaver um, all throughout the South as this man traded slaves. And it was part of Williams Wells Brown's job is to put the shackles um, on other slaves and to keep them on their feet as they were moved throughout the, uh, throughout the South. And they were brought back um, here, and then slaves throughout Missouri were actually uh, you know, sent back down South. And it was his job to keep these slaves corralled and to feed them and um, to assist the slaver. And what's interesting about that, all throughout his journey, and he did this for quite a while, um, you know, fairly close to 10 years, one of the things that, uh, that I found out was interesting is that they would crisscross very close. They would trade in Kentucky, and they would be just the Ohio River across from Freedom in Ohio. Or they would be trading up and down the Mississippi, and, of course, with Illinois being on, that, on, on, on free soil on the other side. And at one time, and he talks in his autobiography how he um, had come back on a buying trip, you know, literally with, with, his, with his, you know, master. And um, 
there on the docks um, in St. Louis on the levee was his own mother. And he had been away from her for about a year at this time um, since he had been on the road. And um, they, they hugged each other, and he you know, made plans for him to help her to escape. And they did escape uh, into Illinois. They didn't really get that far. They only got about 50 miles in when they were recaptured. And Williams Wells Brown was sent back to the slaver that, that he ran away, that, you know, he had ran away from. And his mother was definitely sold down south. But he had made up his mind that if he got the opportunity, that his next opportunity, he would leave. And on another buying trip through Kentucky, he did cross the Ohio and ran, but he kept running till he got to Europe. And then Paris is where his freedom actually takes place. And it's, it's, and how he found himself. And that's, of course, where he wrote Cloutier and uh, the president's daughter. And, um, you know, he's credited to being the first, um, uh, the first African American to write a novel. And he wrote several books. And then once he was, you know, is, uh, celebrated as a novelist, as being black in Europe, is when he came back to the United States. But he had a very interesting, reading his autobiography gives you a working idea of what slavery was here in, in Missouri. And it was a lot different than it was. I mean, there was the beatings and this and that, uh, the same thing that was down south. However, the, there weren't the massive plantations. We did not have the gang labor that was in the deep south. These, the farmers here were... Where they were small farms, and, and mm-hmm. the farmers worked side by side with the slaves in a lot of instances. But um, the biggest, the biggest slaver in the state uh, only had 98 slaves ever. So there were a lot of small farms, and it was different. And we had a very large free black population in St. Louis from the very beginning. Um, mm-hmm. So it was it was a little different here, um, very mm-hmm. different. Yeah. Interestingly enough, uh, uh, Missouri and its its history, it's been so prominent in terms of some of the roles that African Americans have, have played in, in shaping history. But with with Barack Obama uh, ascending to the presidency and the focus that has been there with uh, his inspiration from Abraham Lincoln, there's a Missourian uh, by the name of Elizabeth Keckley who has a tie to Abraham Lincoln through Mary Todd Lincoln that I think is an interesting story that uh, I think kind of shows how uh, many have blazed that trail to the White House. Uh, and, and so I'd like for you in our remaining minutes here to share that story about Elizabeth Keckley. Well, Elizabeth Keckley um, was actually was, was born a slave um, uh, in back east, I think in Virginia, and um, again, she was very traded and brought here to uh, to Missouri by by one of her owners, and she was trained um, first as a nurse, and then um, as when she was a nurse, she had a lot of time um, as she, you know downtime when she was nursing people that she started sewing, and she became an incredible modiste, and which is which is a step up from dressmaker. I mean, this woman was doing couture fashions, you know, early on. And um, she originally started sewing for the wife of uh, Robert E. Lee. And it's through that connection, because, uh, you know, Mary Todd Lincoln is a distant cousin to, to the Lees, that Elizabeth Todd is introduced to Mary Todd Lincoln. And at this point, Mary Todd Lincoln was, was, had just a, was arriving into 
uh, or leaving, rather, uh, Washington, D.C. for the first inauguration. And what is so incredible about that is that um, Elizabeth Keckley did make her second inaugurational gown. But um, Mrs. B- Mrs. Uh, Lincoln was very busy um, the day that Elizabeth Keckley arrived to, uh, for her interview as, as for a dressmaker. And within five minutes of the first uh, of, the, of the women meeting, they really liked each other. And as it turned out, um, Elizabeth Keckley moved into the White House and stayed there. Her bedroom, she was not too far down the hall from Mary Todd Lincoln. She literally lived there. And one of the most incredible and heart-wrenching stories, I think, of her four years in the White House was when Tad died, um, the youngest son of the Lincolns. Mary Todd Lincoln could not stand the thought of anybody touching her child other than Elizabeth. So Elizabeth is the one who prepared the body for burial. And she was often called upon um, to comfort both uh, Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln. They both held her in very high regard and very high esteem. And um, Elizabeth Keckley had only one son, and he was born, again, um, fathered by one of her masters. And for a long time, one of the first major battles um, uh, of the Civil War was down, it was here in Missouri at Wilson's Creek. And it was one of the major battles that kept Missouri in uh, in the Union. But for a long time at Wilson Creek, the federal government would say there were never any blacks that fought there. And it wasn't until only about six years, six or seven years ago, now whether or not they knew it, whether or not this was an era of commission, omission, not sure, but it was finally brought to the attention that Elizabeth Keckley's only son, did fight and die at Wilson's Creek. But the interesting thing about it was he had enlisted as a white man. So he was able to pass, um, and, but he did die there. And it's something that she never really it was like a hole in her heart. But she wrote the most incredible book about, uh, called 30 Years, of Slave, uh, 30 Years of Slave, Four Years in the White House. It talks about her time there. And when she published her book, um, you know, she, she did say some kind of unkind things because Mary Todd Lincoln became kind of unhinged um, after Abraham Lincoln was killed. Mm. And, uh, well, Angela, we're, we're going to have uh, to, to leave it there. I mean, we could really have you on um, several shows, uh, and, and you are full of uh, historical knowledge, and we appreciate the time that you've spent with us and, and our audience today uh, just bringing history alive.